are going to be talking to none other than Chris Williamson. Um, do you actually know what happened to him? You know, he's he lost his life's work in the Labour movement. Uh, the smears and lies and attacks against him were just horrendous. And we all know, perhaps, that, you know, they, he had to be got out at all costs. So he's written a book about it, and it's 10 years of hard labour. So can we bring Chris in? Oh, Chris is on the screen, is he? Hi, Chris. Hiya, Lizzie, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Well, I've got a hay fever or something, so excuse me if I, you know, use a hanky. <laughs> right, so, I mean, I've known you for a fair few years now, and I was always struck by the way that you were so representative of so many people in the labor movement and i can't i couldn't at first understand why you were being targeted and smeared and of course it did occur to me that the reason for that was because that you were so you were speaking out in a way that the mainstream media and the elite behind the mainstream media didn't enjoy and in, indeed the government and we know now that those same targets and smears were, were used to take out Jackie, Jackie Walker, Mark Wadsworth, uh, Ken Livingston and then eventually Jeremy Corbyn. So it wasn't just you but you know how long you'd spent your entire life in the labor movement hadn't you yeah i mean i joined the labor party when i was 19 in 1976 and really dedicated my life to being an activist i did never expect to become an mp when i first joined the labor party in fact it was a bloke called philip whitehead who was the mp for darby north who recruited me into the labor party actually because i tried to join on three separate occasions but my application just seemed to disappear into a black hole and in desperation I contacted Philip Whitehead. Uh, I knew that Philip was a, an animal rights advocate, as it were, um, a parliamentarian in support of the anti-blood sports campaign, and I was very active in that. And so I knew him through, through those activities and wrote to him and said that I wasn't able to join the Labour Party. I'd been trying on several occasions, and, and he sorted it out for me. So essentially, he kind of recruited me into the party. And, you know, he was somebody who was... Um, you know, somebody who I thought kind of fitted the, the description of being an MP's background, you know, he was, he was a local guy, to be fair, from Derbyshire, but, you know, he was a very erudite guy, very kind of well-educated individual and TV producer and writer and all those sorts of things. And, you know, I was an apprentice bricklayer. The last thing I ever thought I would end up being was, was being, a, a, well, even a councillor, never mind, a member of, of parliament. But, you know, I was content with throwing myself into the frontline of activism really and uh, you know i felt that it was important that we got activists on the ground i always thought that the labor party was the best vehicle to deliver progressive social change i guess i looked at the labor party through those tinted spectacles my mum and dad were were labor supporters M my mum and dad were of the second world war generation and you know they talked fondly about a labor government coming to power in 1945 and introducing the national health service and building loads of houses and uh, introducing the uh, welfare state and ensuring full employment etc and of course i was a beneficiary of that i mean i mean the post-war consensus that that labor government heralded in 
uh, ensured that there was a narrowing of inequality in, in, in the country. So, you know, I, uh, in the mid-1970s, was a you know, young apprentice bricklayer, able to buy my own house and stuff like that, and thought things were just going to carry on, really. But as I say, I just felt that the Labour Party was that was that vehicle, and um, I now realise that in reality, it's always been a tool of the establishment, and even in that 1945 Labour government didn't really do as much as it could have done. And although it's set in train that post-war consensus, there were many areas of domestic policy as well as certainly foreign policy where they fell well short. And obviously, when Dennis Healy went to the International Monetary Fund in 1976 and heralded in the kind of monetarist neoliberal era that we're still living with today, we saw that then being turbocharged by Thatcher and carried on by Tony Blair and, and Gordon Brown. To actually continue the deregulation, in fact, went further with the deregulation uh, agenda. But even in those dark days of New Labour, you know, Lizzie, I, I kind of remained loyal to the Labour Party. I always felt that the Labour Party, even then, was still the best vehicle we got. Um, I was maybe content with crumbs from the table, but always had this naive hope that one day, if we could get sufficient numbers of members of the Labour Party, we might be able to change it. And if one day we could maybe elect somebody like Tony Benn, I was very active in in Tony Benn's deputy leadership campaign in 1981. And, you know, we didn't quite get over the line. Actually, had the, had the uh, Electoral College applied the same proportions as applied when Tony Blair was elected, then Tony Benn would have been elected as deputy leader. The course of history would have been very different. But I, as I say, stuck to this notion that one day, you know, only we could just get enough members. And I was forever, you know, urging people, even in the dark days of of new Labour to say, well, look, we'll join the Labour Party, help us make it better. And um, then when I lost my seat in 2015, and then Jeremy managed to get onto the ballot paper and we got involved in that campaign and it gathered momentum. And obviously Jeremy then got elected by, by a landslide and then this mass membership developed. We got left-wing leader, protege of, of Tony Benn. I thought, blimey, you know, we, we're there. We're gonna, we're gonna really do something really credible now. And unfortunately, it all, fell apart. I mean, we had a great opportunity after 2017. That was probably, you know, Lizzie, the best result that we could have hoped for, because had we won a majority in that election, we wouldn't have been able to deliver that manifesto because the Parliamentary Labour Party would have sabotaged it. But in 2017, we came close, as you'll recall, and we then embarked on this democracy um, review, and I went on a tour of the country and added to its terms of reference by saying we've got to make MPs accountable to the members. We've got to put the members in the driving seat to determine policy, to determine who the candidates are at elections and so on. And if we can achieve that, then we've got a fighting chance, if we can get into government, of being able to implement our programme. But that would have been only the start, Lizzie, of the struggle. Uh, we wouldn't have, at least, we would have been able to neutralise the enemy within, if you like, the parliamentary Labour Party, the right wing particularly of the parliamentary Labour Party would have been neutralised by that democratisation agenda. But of course, the establishment were all geared up to ensure that we couldn't, you know, well, make they, they, they did so, get a big shock, didn't they? You know, we yes. scared the living daylights out oh, of them. And I think that, you know, they had got complacent, thinking that it was just going to be situation normal forever, and that the people would never educate themselves enough or critically think enough to be able to rise up and all of a sudden there's this absolute hippie from the back seats 
just stood up and said, I'll do it. And everybody followed him. And that's where I came into the Labour movement. Before that, I had never voted. I knew that the government and all of its machinations were totally corrupt. Mm. And I knew this. But when I saw Jeremy Corbyn become leader, Ed Miliband tried tried his best. But, you know, as you detail in your book, he failed. Um, But he was taken out with a bacon sandwich. So, I mean... Ed was no Jeremy Corbyn, and I remember saying to Ed Miliband, and I've covered this in the book, actually, that, you know, if stick to your instincts, Ed, and if I give it a done that, then he would have achieved a lot more. But he was undone by the Parliamentary Labour Party as well. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that Baker sandwich didn't help, but, but you know, the Parliamentary Labour Party were, were pretty objectionable towards him. Well, the bacon sandwich was probably leaked, you know, that he'd be there eating a bacon sandwich at that particular time, wasn't it? What on earth he was doing, posing for a photograph like that, I don't know. But anyway, he did. But, I mean, his his policy agenda was was essentially continuity New Labour, even though he talked about turning the page on New Labour. And again, you know, I talk about this in the book and, and talk about you know, issues in relation to the welfare reform bill and uh, and some of the um, the battles that we had in the parliamentary Labour Party at the time in relation to that and retrospective legislation that was going to, you know, basically impoverish still further unemployed uh, workers, etc. Um, and, you know, if, if, if we, if we, if Ed had followed through on that commitment that he gave in the leadership election campaign of 2010 to turn the page on New Labour. And, and indeed, one of the things Ed said was that if we'd listened to our members a bit more when we were in government, we wouldn't have made as many mistakes. And then, oh, great soundbite, but then he, did, he never he, he continued to not listen to the members, as it were. And, uh, and so the offer was pretty pathetic. It was kind of austerity light. And that's what yeah. I, think. I mean, I remember going around knocking on doors. I mean, again, I covered this in the book in the 2015 election. And people were saying, well, you're all the same. There's no bloody difference, you know. And, uh, and the truth was, there wasn't really very much difference uh, between us. And I mean, and that, a lot of that was really Ed Balls's fault. Um, you know, he was you, very arrogant and, uh, and committed, a committed neoliberal at the end of the day. Did you feel that, um, I know you said you suffered from imposter syndrome. Did, yeah. you, did you feel with Ed, uh, both Miliband and Balls, that you were looking up at the elite or the establishment and that you weren't a part of it. You were just looking up at it. Yes, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I never really took to that place. I mean, it's interesting because some of the, I mean, and again, there's a, you know, give a few little anecdotes about some of the work, not that there are very many working class uh, Labour MPs in the house anymore, uh, but I give one or two little um, uh, uh, examples of, how they've essentially just gone, gone native, really. They, they've, they've really steeped themselves in the bullshit um, procedures and protocols yeah. of the House of Commons. And I never, ever did. I always bloody hate it. I mean, you know, I suppose when I first arrived there, you're kind of in awe of the place. But I never felt I belonged there, partly because of that imposter syndrome thing that, I, that, that you mentioned and I've you know, referred to in the book, but, but, um, but also because I could just see the place just wasn't fit for purpose. 
I mean, if the chamber's not even big enough for a start, for the members, you know? Yeah, everybody has to stand at the side, don't they, if they want to get in there? It's an absurdity. It, 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 it's a palace. And, it, you know, when I came back in 2017, I started doing a regular video about the week in Westminster. And one of the videos, which was the most popular, actually, was the one I did about the plans to refurbish the House of Parliament, Houses of Parliament. And the, the cost at that time, it's probably ballooned since then. I, I mean, I thought I must have been, I misread it when I looked at the figure because they were talking about a cost of 3.5 billion pounds that's that's 3,500 million pounds it's kind of an astonishing figure and I was thinking that can't be right three and a half billion quid bloody hell that can't be right and it was and you know as I say that was just one of the options actually there was another option and there's various sorts of um, propositions about completely decanting or doing the work whilst the, the you know that parliament continued to function and you know, different options uh, will, you know, cost more money, just more and more expensive. So I did this video saying, well, this is just ridiculous. You know, I mean, what could we do with that money? I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't save the building. I mean, some might argue we should, we should bulldoze it because it's uh, <laughs> a symbol of imperialism, which it is. Um, but I would not go, I wasn't suggesting we should go that far. I was saying, well, let's just if you like mothballing, turn it into a museum, a museum of democracy, but there ain't much democracy really in reality. Goes on in that place, but okay, let's play the game for a minute and uh, and say, let's let's turn it into a museum of democracy. Let's let's build a, a, a parliament somewhere else that's fit for purpose. Let's move it out of London. Let's move yeah. it over. Let's yeah. have a situation where the political centre is in a different location to the kind of commercial centre because it's incredibly unhealthy, I think, this kind of incestuous relationship between the commercial centre and, and the kind of uh, political centre. And that manifests itself in all sorts of ways. I mean, one of the most obvious ones, I think, is the amount of money that goes in, for example, to the kind of local infrastructure in the kind of uh, London and the kind of surrounding environs, you know? And you compare how much, for example, is spent on infrastructure for head of population in London and the Southeast, with you know where I live in the Midlands and where you live in the Southwest and and, and, and further north. I mean, it, there's no there's no comparison, and that is partly I think because you have that on, on a healthy link. And just going back to the point I was making, though, no, Lizzie, the you know the the vast majority of them um, you know come from that sort of you know Oxbridge and many from sort of public school and so yeah I did feel a bit kind of in, inferior to that and then you know the few working class MPs that were there were, were just as oh, you know like lackeys really like the sort of gamekeeper lackeys you know that, that go around beating the grouse uh, for the for the masters on the uh, uh, on, on the grouse moors you know kind of lickspittles really uh, who who just steep themselves in all this kind of bullshit sort of um, paraphernalia uh, and that never really attracted me at all I mean just you know, it just seemed completely ludicrous, really. Even the vocabulary that's used in the place creates yeah. the distance between people and yeah. uh, the members of parliament, you know? Um, it's supposed to be, you know, the people's parliament, but it's anything but that. It's actually the elite's parliament. And parliamentarians on both sides of the chamber act as mouthpieces for corporate capitalism, for the military industrial complex you know for, for, for imperialism yeah and um, you know uh, 
I guess, you know, I mean, Winston Churchill said, did he say something about, um, you know, we shape the, some words of this effect, anyway, we, you know, we shape the buildings and then the buildings shape us. And I just think you know, there's a lot to be said about that, you know, that just the way in which that's, uh, that, you know, the way Parliament is, is constructed, the architecture, the chamber, and they're going to spend, incredibly, when apparently the MPs have to decant for the refurbishment work, they're going to spend, I think it was about 20 or 30 million quid, and again, that figure may have gone up, to build a replica parliament, a replica, <laughs> a replica chamber. I mean, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's absolutely parking mad, you know, but, you know, they all kind of love it. Well, I say all, the vast majority, they kind of love all that, you know, they yeah. just get away with it. Well, was it Zara Sultana when she first went into the House of Commons, I think it was her, made a video of all the gifts that she was given? Yes, yes, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, you know, the thing is that, and Richard Bergen, when he first went in, he made lots of videos interviewing the likes of Dennis Skinner yeah, and yeah. other other MPs, and he doesn't do any of that anymore. Zara Sultana has done a few, but um, she's she's going to be. Is she going to be up for reselection? I suspect she probably will be. I've heard nothing about it so far, but I mean, yeah. to left in the so-called left in the Parliamentary Labour Party are um, toothless tigers. Really, they're doing nothing. Yeah, I mean, or, or in there for their own agendas, aren't they? In, yeah, the, in their, their own salaries. It seems that way, you know, cowards and traitors is is how I describe the Parliamentary Labour Party. Um, there's a line, as you know, in the red flag, where cowards flinch and traitors steer. I thought, well, that could have been written for the Parliamentary Labour Party. Not yes. one of them were prepared to speak up for me, for Jackie Walker, for Mark Wadsworth, for Ken Livingston. Ken Livingston, for God's sake, Ken <laughs> has probably done more than anybody in public office, in high public office, when he was a leader of the Greater London Council in the early 1980s, who weren't the soubriquet as a loony lefty, in large measure, for the stance he was taking against racism. Yeah. I mean, racism, you know, was still quite a thing, you know, casual racism. I remember confronting it myself on the building sites and nearly getting the head kicked in more than a few occasions. And so it's incredibly hurtful to then be accused of being some sort of bigot, some sort of racist, anti-Semite. And of course, Ken was one of the first high-profile uh, individuals to be to be targeted. Um, nobody spoke up for him. I mean, I did. I mean, I wasn't in Parliament when they first went for Ken, but I continued to speak up for him uh, afterwards. I, that was it. When, when they went for Ken, I think it was 2016, I was in that hiatus between losing my seat in 2015 and coming back in, in 2017. But continued to use my platform when I, when I you know, regained it to actually speak out. Because my view, Lizzie, is, and maybe I'm a naive, I don't know, but I don't think I am. I mean, I think it's the right way to be, although I seem to be the only one. <laughs> I'm not trying to sort of blame me on Trump bit <laughs> at all, but I seem to be the only one, the only MP that was prepared to not just talk the talk, maybe people feel I can't talk the talk, but I was prepared to walk the walk. I was prepared to use my platform. I felt it was important to use your political platform to speak up for what's right and to certainly show solidarity to comrades who have been incredibly badly treated. And, you know, Ken Livingston was one of these figures that, you know, you mean talk about looking up to people. I mean, he was he was like an icon of the Labour movement. I mean, he's in his 70s now. He should be seen as an elder statesman yeah. of the Labour movement, should be venerated and respected. And I think he is by lots of grassroots members. And the well, grassroots and by, 
incredibly supportive to me, but he's like treated as a pariah by the Labour uh, establishment. That's exactly like George Galloway before him. Everyone, you know, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, and... Uh, he should be treated as an elder statement, statesman simply for what he did do. That, you know, the Ken or George or any, you know, but these people have contributed a lot, have made a lot of sacrifices, you know. I mean, talking about George there, for example, I mean, he was like um, undercover in, in South Africa working for the ANC, you know, when yeah. he was at risk of being killed, you know, putting yeah. his life on the line yeah. for a principle. Yeah. Now, how many people that slide George off week in and week out have put their lives on the line for a principle? Yeah. Very, very few, I suspect, you know. And that's not to say or defend everything that George says. I mean, there's certain things I disagree with George on, on a range of different stuff. But George used his considerable platform to defend me when I was under attack. And it was a severe attack. And in fact, as I was researching for this book, uh, Lizzie, I mean, I came across loads of stuff. Um, that I just didn't know had been written or said about me. You know, it was quite a cathartic experience writing the book and quite revealing to me, even though, you know, I lived it. Some of the stuff that I discovered, some of the people that, you know, stabbed me in the back. Yeah. I, mean, I didn't know. I mean, one of those, you know, Lizzie, was the, was the uh, um, chief executive of the Board of Deputies, a woman called Jim Merrick, Gillian as she liked to be called when she became an MP. I've known her for 40 years. I used to yeah. work with her as a welfare ice officer. She used to go on holiday with my late wife. They went to Cuba together. We used to campaign together. She knows me. And she joined in the smears. She wrote, the day I was, or the day after it must have been, I was briefly reinstated for 48 hours. Jimmy wrote this despicable op-ed for, I think it was The Independent, Making out I was this, you know, despicable figure. She knew it was a lie. Yeah. I mean, she, she knows what she was writing were bare-faced lies. Yeah, you know, she just did it. And that yeah. was just one of a number, you know, that um, I felt incredibly let down by. I mean, okay, you know, she's working with the Board of Deputies, the Zionist organisation. Maybe you shouldn't be so too surprised. And perhaps I wouldn't have expected her to, you know, come out singing my praises, but you don't expect somebody that you know and have known from, you know, relatively young age to, you know, write bare-faced lies betray about you, To betray you, to betray you so utterly. I mean, I tell you what, yeah. if my late wife was, was alive, my God, yeah, she would have a few choice words for, um, for Jilly Merrin. Of Jilly, let's call her Jilly. That's what we always knew her as. Yes. Jillian nonsense that when she became an MP. I mean, that, that should have told me a story, actually, when she suddenly decided that, oh, no, you must call me Jillian now. I'm, I'm a member of party. God almighty, you know. Yes. What am I, you know. I mean, that typifies a lot of the kind of mentality of these of these characters, you know. Well, yeah. the, this is it. What must go on in their heads? I mean, yes, we can take a step back and look at it and, and realise that actually none of this was about you personally. Yeah. It was about getting rid of you because you were speaking out what you were speaking out about and the fact that you supported the the people rising up. That was the problem. Like they, Jeremy once they said, to, they wanted to crush uh, the this movement. They wanted to crush the, the Corbyn project. Yeah. They saw me as uh, an important figure in that movement. Um, Jeremy's if you like, key lieutenant, his loudest advocate, uh, incredibly loyal to him. And 
it was a democracy roadshow, I think, which really wound them up because I was going yeah. around the country. Yeah. We were getting huge audiences talking about democracy. And they were just, you know, they were just going apoplectic. All oh, my lights going on. They were just going apoplectic about all that. Um, yeah. And um, well, and that's that's why I, they. I was told by um, I was told by somebody. Hang on a minute, Lizzie. My my bloody lights are <laughs> playing up here. You're just, flashing. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. I'm just going to get my thing on. I was told by um, one MP that he overheard a group of these uh, saboteurs speaking in the tea room. Uh, about me, about my case, and saying we've got to get Williamson expelled as payback for the democracy roadshow. And they yeah. go into, again, some detail about that in, in, in the book. So they were spitting feathers. And I was told as well by another MP, actually, uh, funny enough, actually, an MP who'd wanted to uh, organise a, a crowdfunder to have me assassinated um, in, in, a, in a painful way, apparently, she said. <laughs> but anyway, that's uh, by the by. Um, I'm sure it was just a joke, but she said, um, because that was then leaked to me and she was very embarrassed. So we kind of kind of mixed up and she was very profusely apologetic about it. And again, I speak about the detail of that without giving too much away in, in, in the book. But one of the things that she said was that I was giving the Parliamentary Labour Party a collective nervous breakdown because I was touring the country. And I said, look, there's no reason why, look, I'm only going to places where the members have invited me. I guess that was what was kind of winding them up. That was the problem. Were in, you know, they were themselves invited to attend. And in some cases, admittedly, it was a left-wing MPs, they came along. And we, and listen, we didn't talk that much about deselection yet. In fact, I never did talk about deselection. I talked about open selections. I said there are plenty of people that I would love to see deselected. But it ain't up to me, and nor should it be up to me, or... Jeremy Corbyn, it should be your decision. And yeah. that's all we're saying. But the vast majority of the discussion was about how we could democratise the Labour Party, how we could make the regional officers more fit, well, not more fit, but make them fit for purpose in the first place, because they're certainly not fit for purpose now. But all of that could be seen as just negative contemplation. But the point I was making is, and again, it's what something that Tony Benn said, were to the effect of that we need to democratise our party in order to democratise society. And that was the point that I was making. Look, if we're going to democratise our economy, we've got to get the structures of the Labour Party right to make sure that, you know, we can continue to reach out and, and uh, inspire people on the ground and continue to build and renew our movement, continue to hold the feet to the fire and keep their feet firmly planted on the ground of the MPs and councillors that get elected to, to representers, uh, 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 you know, in town halls and, and, in, and in parliament. But, uh, but ultimately, it was about, as I say, ensuring that through the uh, representative that we had in parliament and hopefully, obviously, then into, into government, that we could ensure that the, the economy did actually work for people that we did make industries democratically, like the utilities. We didn't, I mean, I was saying, look, we don't want to just kind of have a, you know, adopt the same model of nationalization that we did in 1945, because we just changed one monolith, you know, a private monolith to a public sector monolith. And when the Tories came in and turbocharged the neoliberal agenda that Dennis Healy set in train, and when they started then privatizing, you know, things like electricity, water, and all the rest of it. And people like myself, and I'm sure you, Lizzie, and, and many activists on the ground, if you were around in those days, 
I'm not sure whether I'm sort of, uh, you're probably too young actually, but anyway, uh, but we were kind of making the case, look, you know, this, but you already own it. People didn't feel they owned it. They felt remote from the electricity board, the water board, the gas board. And so the point I was making is that, look, we need a new model of public ownership, one that is democratically accountable so that people do genuine, genuinely feel a stake in it. And, you know, we were talking about the similar stuff at John McDonald, and I was saying we should go further in relation to, um, you know, uh, the right to own, to, you know, to, to, to create a network of, of worker co-ops. And one of the things that John was arguing and put in the manifesto that any company that was going to be sold should in give the first right of refusal to buy out that company to its workforce, to that, that which then would, they would then be able to create a worker cooperative and they get finance for that from the national or the regional investment bank that John was talking about um, uh, creating and, and the support needed to actually you know, create a company to create a, a cooperative in that sense. But I was saying, well, we should go further than that. We should say any time that a company is going to offshore jobs, never mind about selling the company, I mean, like the city I was born in, it was a town when I was born in it, became a city in 1977, Derby, but um, there was 120,000 people working in manufacturing in Derby. Now it's, I don't know, about 25 or 30,000. It's still quite a lot, but, you know, nothing like it was. Now, new technologies take us some of them, but not the vast majority of them have been offshore. This is globalisation. This is neoliberalism. And so what I was arguing, you know, as part of the democracy review and in these, in these, um, Democracy Roadshow meetings is, you know, putting forth those sorts of ideas that, you know, we, if we're going to make the economy work for us, if we're going to democratise the economy, if we're going to bring about the irreversible shift in the balance of wealth and power that we talked about and incorporated into our 1974 Labour manifesto, which Healy and bloody Callaghan then abandoned and led the, you know, opened the door for Thatcherism and neoliberalism and the rest of it. But if we were going to bring about that irreversible shift in the balance of, of wealth and power, then we, then we needed this mobilised, this politicised uh, movement. And, you know, the key thing for me, and one of the reasons why we've, you know, created Resist, and we're still only a very small acorn, I keep saying that, but we are, um, was really about trying to um, start to you know, build that political consciousness, you know, to give people that confidence, if you like, that, 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 you know, that they do have power, but we can only exercise power. The working class can only exercise power if we demonstrate solidarity with each other. And that's why they, the establishment do their devil level best to make sure that we remain atomized. That's why, of course, they, they, you know, they, they've undone the trade union movement while they took on and engineered that strike against the the miners, because they were the brigade of guards of the labour movement, they had to smash organised uh, labour in this uh, in this country, and you know that's why we've got endemic precarious <laughs> employment. That's why we've got over 14 million people living in poverty. That's why we've got one and a half million people destitute in this country. That's why we've got people dying on the street because they're you know sleeping rough in the fifth biggest economy. In the world, and all these are the kind of themes that we were talking about in those democracy roadshow meetings, and that's why I think people felt so energized. It's nothing to do with me. It was the kind of topic that we were talking about. People felt really energized at those after those meetings. I felt ready to, you know, man the barriers, as it were, because one of the things I was also saying is that if we can get into government, if we can make our MPs accountable, that's just the, in a way, that's the easy part. We didn't even manage the easy part, is it? 
because no. the establishment will not lie down. They will do their level best to, to smash us, to undermine us, to destroy us. And I'm sure you'll recall a serving general, shortly after Jeremy got elected in 2015, said yeah. that they would use, and his exact words were, fair means or foul, it was a much longer quote, uh, against a Corbyn-led government if they had the temerity to cut defence spending, withdraw from NATO or scrap Trident. Now, that's that's bloody, that's treason, mate. Yeah. That's treason, what he was speaking there. And he was like, you know, reported in the Times of those of him. The mainstream is if it was normal. The yeah. Or saying we're going to use fair means or foul, talking about a coup. Yeah. Now, I was making the point, and I don't think I was indulging in hyperbole, as well as all this other stuff about political consciousness raising and all that, I was saying we're going to need a mass movement on the streets to defend a Labour government if it starts to embark upon the sort of radical reforms that, you know, we, we want to bring about. And, you know, I always used to say, Lizzie, you know, what is it with these elites? What is it with these rich people? Because even with the reforms that we were talking about introducing, they would still be rich. Yes, they would still be ready. We're not sort of going to send them to bloody Anthrax Island on the Outer Hebrides or something. Do you know what I mean? It's like they would still have loads of money. They've got so much money, they cannot spend it. Literally, yeah. can't spend the money that they've got, even if they tried, you know, to sort of spend it on whatever. You know, I mean, as somebody said, just to sort of give a, a flavour of, um, you know, how much a billion pounds is. And there's you know, loads of billionaires in this country, and many, many multi-millionaires. And, I can't remember what the stat is, but it's something like if you, to, to count to a million, it's about 11 days or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And it's 130 years. Yes, that's right. Which gives you an indication of the scale of it, you know. Yeah. How much money do these people want? I mean, it's, you know, I don't know, mate. But of course, with that comes incredible power. Uh, and they use that power, they wielded that power against us. But unfortunately, I still feel that we might have prevailed. It would have been difficult. But unfortunately, the people around Jeremy, and again, it's what I cover in the book, um, the people around Jeremy, Jeremy himself, they didn't fight. They well, didn't for fight me. Hard. They tried to appease the unappeasable. They tried to appease the Zionist law, but they weren't interested in being appeased. No. You know, they fancy going, sending Jeremy to go and prostrate himself before the border deputies, this Zionist conservative yeah. outfit, and, the, and the, this self-appointed Jewish leadership council. I could have written the press statement that they were going to write before it even happened. Yeah. Inevitably, they said it was a waste of time, Corby's not listening, and all the rest of it. And as for the Jewish Leadership Council, something else I cover in the book, and the whole anti-Semitism, you know, nonsense. Debarkle. I mean, uh, one of the examples that I cite in the book is when, and it was a few weeks before, well, no, the, the, the month before I was suspended. Every year, leading up to Holocaust Memorial Day, the uh, Holocaust Education Trust has a, what they call a book of commitment in the uh, House of Commons in, the, in, the, in a kind of cloistered area. And please sign it, you know, and I've signed it every year when I was there in 2015 and so on. Um, and um, I'd signed it in 2017 and signed it in, in 2018 as well. And uh, they took a photograph of me and asked if I could put it out on social media, which I you know, dutifully did. Uh, and with, with a message, and I kind of basically repeated the message that I'd written in the Book of Commitment, talking about, you know, the horror, I can't remember the precise wording, Lizzie, but it worked to the effect about the horrors of the of the Holocaust, we, you know, we must do everything we can to, you know, 
prevent the horrors of the Holocaust ever, ever returning. And, and it was words of effect, you know, through, through love and solidarity, you know, we will prevail. Words of those effects, anyway. I'll put it much more, much more eloquently than, than I've just sort of, <laughs> you know, recited it to you. But for doing that, that was then seen as, uh, as Jew-baiting, as uh, baiting the Jewish community. Um, you got Rachel Riley saying, you know, Jew-baiter Chris Williamson, uh, hands off our grief, how dare you? And I got a letter, a formal letter, which was an open letter published on social media from the chair of the self-appointed Jewish Leadership Council, taking me to task. You know, how dare you, you're a disgrace. You know, blah de blah de blah. It's unbelievable. We reproduced the letter in the in the well. I think actually we've got some QR codes which people can scan and it'll take them to the original uh, document. But uh, you know what I mean? That was a, that was a scale of it. It was just absurd, and yeah. um, it didn't matter what you did. You know, no. nothing was good enough. And so what? You know, Jeremy's big mistake was in, in trying to reason with these people. He should have just told him to sod off from the day from day one. And, you know, if he was a bit uncomfortable about, which I don't think he should have been, but if he felt a bit uncomfortable about speaking out on an issue like anti-Semitism in support of people like Mark Wadsworth or Ken Livingston who weren't Jewish, then he had the perfect alibi, the perfect reason to speak out when they, when they went for Jews. Yeah. Tony Greenstein, the son of a rabbi, whose dad confronted Oswald Mosley's fascists in 1936 at the Battle of Cable Street. I mean, and Tony has an encyclopedic uh, sort of uh, yeah, knowledge about the history of Zionism and so on and whatever else. And, I mean, you know, he's scathing about the Board of Deputies. And he was saying back even in those days, the Board of Deputies were saying to the Jewish community, oh, don't get involved in this uh, confrontation with the fascists, you know, stay indoors and all that kind of stuff. Well, obviously, his dad, the rabbis, who have not been any of that, you know. And he was basically the Jewish community, the... The, the Irish community, you know, the, the Labour movement coming together to confront Oswald Mosley's fascists. So, yeah, perfect example, Cyril Chilson, another grotesque example, really, of uh, the, the depths to which the Zionist lobby, to which the right wing of the Labour Party will sink. Cyril was born in Israel. Cyril yeah. served in the Israeli military. Cyril saw the light, came to this country, became a strong advocate for... Palestinian rights, a big supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. He was accused of anti-Semitism, expelled from the Labour Party for bringing it into disrepute on the grounds that he was anti-Semitic. Both his parents, Lizzie, survived yeah. Auschwitz. Both his parents. They were on the death march, Lizzie. I mean, it's, it's I mean, it's, you know, it kind of makes my blood boil even now to think about it. It's so bloody despicable and unfair and wrong and unjust. And yet they got away with it. And Jeremy didn't speak out. The campaign group didn't speak out against these abuses. I was the only one, Lizzie. <laughs> and that's why you were taken out. I am not anything special at all. But it just comes back to that point, that if you have a political platform, I believe, maybe I'm old-fashioned, you are duty-bound yeah. to use that to speak up for what's right. And for Christ's sake, if it isn't right to speak up for, for somebody who was falsely accused of anti-Semitism, whose parents survived Auschwitz, whose dad was a, a rabbi, and then, of course, a Jackie Walker, uh, you know, the despicable way in which, you know... Already she been was, thrown out of America. I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, there's the army, isn't it? You know, victims yeah. of McCarthyism. Again, yeah. I mentioned this in the book. I talked about it in some detail about Jackie. Victims of McCarthyism had to 
leave America, came to this country, you know, had a very difficult life, Jackie, you know, I mean, they were poor, victims of racism, and, you know, racism in the 60s was, was pretty bloody appalling. A little girl, I mean, and she's, a, she's an inspiration, you know. She inspired me because, you know, she didn't buckle. She maintained her dignity, you know. Yeah. And I remember the first time I saw her, Lizzie. Uh, sorry, the first time I saw Jackie it was outside the um, was outside the Labour Party uh, conference uh, hall. In um, she was outside; she couldn't go in because she was suspended at the time, despicably. And uh, she was leafleting, and, and I spoke to to Jackie. Uh, and again, I mentioned this in the book. I talked about that, that encounter, you know. And um, I stopped and chatted to her. You know, and she was quite surprised actually because she'd seen she'd seen about me. You know, she she didn't think that I would want to be seen with her. You know. Yeah. And I said, you, you couldn't be further from the truth, Jackie. You know, how you've been treated is absolutely appalling. And, you know, I'm, I can't remember again. I can't remember the precise words. I think I've cited it in the book here. Um, but I said, it's kind of privilege, you know, to meet you. Uh, you know, we, we posed for a photograph and, I, you know, we shared it, shared it around. And again, that, that was, again, caused me some, some, uh, some uh, grief, as it were. But, but Jackie was a real inspiration because, you know, she, she maintained her dignity. Yeah, she got expelled. But she kind of, you know, she she showed the way. And, you know, as I say, all that she'd experienced, all that yeah. her parents experienced, and for her then to become a victim of, of, a, of a Labour Party McCarthy-style witch hunt. I mean, it, you know, it, oh, dear me. This is so bloody wrong, you know, Lizzie. It's so unfair, it's so unjust, it's so despicable. But so many people have been treated so badly, and some people have experienced real mental ill health uh, 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 oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and the, the Labour Party is just... If it's ever been fit for purpose, it's totally unfit for purpose now. And I think our duty, I keep saying this, is to destroy the Labour Party. Do our best to destroy the Labour Party. Like yeah. in America, we've got two corporate mainstream parties in this country. They both yeah. speak for corporate capitalism. They both speak for yeah. imperialism. They both speak for the for the uh, military war machine. complex, you know, the war yeah. machine. Absolutely. And, yeah. uh, and we've got no prospect. We know we've got no prospect now no. Of, uh, of, of, of turning it round. I mean, you know, maybe I, well, I was naive, but we've never been through the experience of, of the Corbyn era. Tony Benn never ever made it to uh, become the leader or even deputy leader of the of the party. You know, but but we've got we have. I know some people still say, oh, you know, you've got to stay, you've got to fight, but how? No, how? that's right. How? How many every, times? Do you... Every avenue has been denied you. And, uh, you know, we see, I mean, the socialist campaign group, as I keep saying, are pathetic. I mean, uh, they even took their names off that mealy-mouthed uh, Stop the War uh, statement, which was a fairly mild, I believe, uh, statement about the, um, about the situation in, in Ukraine. Uh, you know, you've got Starmer's article of faith now to support NATO. He was even equating NATO. The fact that it was, I mean, this is one of the points about that 1945 Labour government. I mean, very much NATO was established before the so-called Warsaw Pact, you know. Yeah. Uh, Labour, that was, you know, one of the founders uh, of, of uh, all that. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that, that was, again, a big, big error of that, uh, of that 1945 uh, Labour government. But, uh, you know, it's an article of faith now to be, um, uh, to be um, you know, support NATO. And Starbucks are basically putting it on a, on a, on a par with the establishment of the National Health Service. That 1945 Labour government, yes, we set the National Health Service and we created NATO. You know, we created a partner to bloody creating NATO. You think, Jesus Christ almighty, you know. Yeah, yeah. What's these well, people think? You know, I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable, mate. 
it's it's a narrative that they've been given or is ingrained or proper propagandized into them yeah. that they procreate and yeah. looking from the outside um as independent media uh, with the cynicism of being in mainstream media before that i saw i saw that the 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 strategy that was employed against uh, against the likes of Jackie Walker, Mark Wadsworth, who were influential, influential amongst the people, the members of the Labour Party. And yeah. then you came to the forefront as uh, Jeremy Corbyn had proposed ideals and ideas, and you took those forward to actions. You went on the road, you created yeah. the, the Democracy Roadshow, and you went out and you spoke to people and you enabled those people to, to realize their own power. Yeah. And that was your, that was why you had to be taken out. And the final thing, the final nail in your coffin was your trip to the Institute of Statecraft asking <laughs> about the integrity. Yeah, that, 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 that certainly didn't, um, that didn't enamor me to, uh, to the elites, let's put it like that. That, the, that was when they the got serious that, yeah. about taking you out. Yeah. Yeah, that was when they got serious about taking yeah, it out. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people have said that, um, Lizzie, whether it was or not, I don't know, but there's certainly a certainly coincidence there. It's interesting because Alan Duncan, you know... Um, it was bleedingly obvious to me maybe, and to, and to all of independent that. media. Yes, well, yeah, well, again, you know, I'm naive, mate, you know, but... Uh, and again, again, I felt it was important, though, that we, that we confronted them because, again, using your political platform, you know, to do right to speak up was right. I mean, and Alan Duncan in his diaries. You know. So the way that and guy we, slammed the door on you, though. Yeah, he absolutely. He didn't even yeah, wait to hear who you were no, because he absolutely. knew damn well who you were. No, absolutely. But I mean, you know, they've been bankrolled by the government. I mean, uh, just that one project that they set up, the uh, Integrity Initiative, they've had over two million pounds from the uh, Commonwealth Office and about, I think it was about half a million quid from the Ministry of Defence, and it was. Is almost like a replica of the Operation Mockingbird that was set up in the United States in the early 1950s at the height of the Cold War that was eventually kind of like outed by the church uh, committee um, that was set up over there in relation to the Watergate uh, scandal. But yeah, a few people have, uh, I mean, obviously you were kind of like ahead of the curve really there, you know, in, in that sense, uh, saying that you know, that had something to do with, uh, you know, BB. Oh, that, it was absolutely yeah. the reason why you finally, they had to get serious with the attacks on you. Because... Alan Duncan mentions it in his diary, you know. Uh, he talks about um, that horrible Chris Williamson or something. He's the most hated man in Parliament by both sides of the chamber. And he was going on about the integrity of this, and he says, this, this horrible guy, you know, he... he he keeps he keeps raking it up and you know causing me great difficulties and blah blah blah. You know, again, we've quoted these his extracts in there. It's, it's quite funny, actually, quite a compliment really, because he's, he talks about me in the same breath as you're talking about the likes of uh, of Che Guevara and um, Fidel Castro. Well, exactly, and, exactly, uh, because well, you dare. I mean, I was like, bloody hell! I mean, talk about being in the uh, in the company of greats, as it were, to be spoken of. In the same set, I mean, I'm nowhere. But that's I'm not exactly what you were doing. No, uh, that's your imposter syndrome kicking in again. That he and his diaries mentioned explicitly that about the integrity initiative, you know, and that I was, you know, causing them acute embarrassment, etc. Um, and uh, yeah, he called me. Um, 
he was referring to a comment from Nicholas Soames, who referred to some of our front bench as Poundland Lenins or something. And uh, I asked a question about Venezuela and quoted Alfred Desaius, who said that the sanctions against Venezuela were, were tantamount to crimes against humanity and basically challenging the government's position in relation to the Venezuela. And his response was great. You know, he said, uh, I heard from my honourable uh, friend referring to the uh, blah, 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 you know, as uh, Poundland Lenin's is what we've just heard from somebody who's not even worth a penny, let alone a pound. I mean, I'm surprised he didn't have the temerity to turn up in the chamber today, you know. So <laughs> never answered the question. Uh, no, obviously. no, of course not. Well, that's not the point, is it? In an insult, you know. Yeah. Interestingly, Lizzie, when I was asking that question about Venezuela and making the points about Alfred Desaius, I was being jeered as loudly, if not more loudly, by the Labour bench. I was a Labour MP still at that time. I was being jeered loudly, as loudly, if not more loudly, by the Labour benches as I was by the Tory benches. And Duncan was being cheered as loudly in his uh, riposte by the Labour benches as the, as, the, as the Tory. It's unbelievable, mate. Yeah. Well, it's not unbelievable, but, you know... It, it, it's People. staggering. It's, yeah, staggering, it's staggering, isn't yeah, it? it? It's is. staggering it that yeah. the that the, the, this is all normalised. That yeah. this corruption, this war machine, yes. being in control of our government, yeah. the the interests of foreign countries being yeah. in control of this country and of every single thing that any person in this country does, is under the permission of foreign countries. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a scandal, really. But I mean, you know, it's not an entirely a book of, of, of despair and it's just all, you know, gloom and well, doom. Well, we're, we're all still here, aren't we? We may we're be- We're all still here. And I made we're all that still point. outside, the, we're outside the Labour Party now. Yeah, absolutely, I made that point. And, the, you know, the point, I, well, what, I mean, I conclude with, by saying, look, you know, like we are still all here. Yeah. Uh, and that, you and know, we're we, still working as hard as ever. In, in our own way, and we've got to collaborate. We've yeah, got to yeah. find a way of uh, of collaborating. You know, finish off with the hasta la victoria siempre. You know, onwards uh, until victory always. And uh, you know, stores in the wind. I mean, you know, we are. Uh, I mean, I'm speaking to various um, people, uh, prominent people on the on the left. You know, um, about trying to bring socialists together. Difficult, and of course, the state will work its damnedest to try and stop that divide and rule. I mean, the British Empire success was built upon divide and rule. Yeah. And that mentality, that mindset is still alive and kicking inside Absolutely. the elites today. And, uh, you know, they've never really been able to come together. That the greatest, the greatest, you know, tool that they've got to undo us is, is this kind of division amongst ourselves. And, that's the that. and, and we'll know, we know that from things like, you know, what they did during the miners' strike, the spy cop revelations, you know. Yeah, and if you look that's at your CLP, to which they will not stoop to, to if do you look at your If you look at your CLP, you will find that there are at least three people in strategic positions within that CLP that are that are right wing, that are doing the bidding of unknown masters. And if that's happening in your CLP, because how many lefties have been thrown out because someone in their CLP has reported them as being yeah. anti-Semitic, yeah. has has trolled through their social media to find something that they've said which doesn't fit the narrative. And they see the more sinister than that, though. Absolutely, absolutely. If they're doing it in the CLP, they're doing it everywhere. 
Well, and and you know the Paul Mason revelations, just yeah. as they, you know, um, like uh, you know, he's an, asset, he's an asset of the intelligence services. I mean, yes. you know, Paul Mason again. I shared platforms with him, and I was like, again, thinking, bloody hell, I'm sharing a platform with Paul Mason. I'm yeah. not willing to share a platform with Paul Mason. Turns out. He's a bloody spook, you know. Yeah, yeah, he's himself. not worthy. He's not worthy of you, Chris. And <laughs> in 2015, I was at a march to uh, try and protest about the state of the NHS and our doctors and nurses. And Paul Mason appeared at the first at the first protest, and that was when he started doing this. Yeah. So that's seven years he he's been doing this secretly. Well, Before actually, anyone had a. I think it goes back a lot further than that, you know. Right Very probably. To, right back Very to the 1980s, right back, and, and his role in... Uh, oh, yes. ...action or some some kind of far-left group. And, uh, no, I, I, I think it's um, I think it's a, a lot longer, a lot longer yeah. career than just the last seven years. I mean, probably it's a more senior level, certainly, getting into... And the other interesting thing, somebody made this point to me, you know, Lizzie. They were always suspicious, a bit like what you were just saying about you know, the integrity of me being bloody naive and everything, but, but you were kind of ahead of the curve there. But I can't remember what telling me now, but they said they were always suspicious of Paul Mason because they made the point, how has a lefty got into a senior position like him at the heart of the BBC? Particularly when we know that, you know, my father and my sister, you know, they... they BBC do not employ people who absolutely, openly absolutely. admit they're lefties. So they were always suspicious. And so it was no surprise when the revelations at Kit Clarenberg, you know, broke Kit Clarenberg and Max Blumenthal, they, they were not... Uh... <laughs> oh, no, I, was, I don't know if you saw that spidery graph that he did of, of all the kind of dangers to, uh, you know... I did. To... You weren't on it. I wasn't I, on it. I was on it. Oh, were you on it? I was on it. Oh, I was on it, yeah. You're you're part of the privilege then. I don't yeah. know if I want to speak to you now. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I was on it. I was on his spidery diagram, but anyway, yeah. So. Uh, were you a later edition? No, 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 no. Apparently I was on his on his thing. I mean, it's you know Well, when you look at it, you can see where it started, you know, yeah. with with Diane Abbott when she was health yeah. secretary for what was it, two months, you know, and that was at that time in 2015. Yeah. Mm. I think that's when he drew that diagram, first of all, and then he's just added well, to it. Because I don't think I was seen as any sort of particular. I think it was mainly when I particular, although I did. Um, Are you on the Israel map? And I, we drew up a um, like a, a statement that we then got 15 other MP or 13 other MPs to sign for the sake. People like uh, Jeremy signed it, John McDonald signed it, Diane Abbott, Skinner, etc. And this was in desperation, really, because of the austerity light agenda that Miliband was pursuing. And, and we were calling, we had a little meeting, and there's five of us, and again, I mentioned this in the book, uh, and we came forward with this with this proposal. And we didn't want to write an alternative manifesto. We were trying to be helpful, but there were three things that we argued for. We said, we, you know, we, that Labour should commit to uh, an anti-austerity agenda, that we should commit to renationalising, properly renationalising the world. It's not the bloody silly halfway house that Miliband came up with, and repealing the anti-trade union Legislation. There was massive support for that, you know, and that was published in the January of, of uh, 2015. And then, of course, the election came, and we all saw what happened. But yeah, so maybe you saw me as, as, as some sort of uh, uh, a threat, even 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 in 2015. But anyway, yeah. No, you, you are on me now. <laughs> you have absolutely been a threat, and as Jeremy Corbyn said, it's not me they fear; it's you. Oh yes, and, absolutely. And even Jeremy absolutely. betrayed you. You know, Jeremy betrayed you. 
He's never okay. answered the questions that I've put to him about Jim, why. Jim was under why enormous pressure. Of course uh, he was about that. Um, of course he was. But after he, after he he's the wrong left, people around him. After he got attacked himself. Yeah. He's had two years to or three years almost to stand up and speak out the truth about that situation, and still he hasn't. Still he's clinging on to the Labour Party maybe, now. Maybe why? Maybe Maybe it will at some point, but yeah, it is disappointing. But I mean, I say, don't underestimate the pressure uh, that uh, you know is put on uh, individuals. I mean, you've got to be particularly steely. And Jeremy had never had a leadership position before he became leader of the Labour Party. And now, whether or not that meant he was more ill-prepared, but I mean, look, if it was somebody like George Gallifrey, he would have never made those concessions. Or Ken Livingstone, me, I wouldn't have done. You know, and I certainly wouldn't have abandoned my comrades. I would have spoken out against this bullshit. Yeah. Uh, and you can't be all things to all people. I always say, you know, politics should be about giving people a choice. Yeah. Stand up for your beliefs. Okay, you will alienate some people. You will piss some people off. But you'll also inspire other people. And politics, democracy, should be about giving people a choice. Yeah, it should to be, be about... People, because as Nye Bevan said, the problem with that is when you stand in the middle of the road, you tend to get run over. <laughs> well, I, I, we've got less than 30 seconds left. So all that's left for me to say is thank you so much, Chris Guevara, for coming on the show tonight and talking thank about you. the way that you have stood up for the people of this country and spoken out about the truth of the matter, which is that there is no way there is a political solution for this at the moment. It needs to be grassroots. It needs the people to rise up. I think so. Grassroots action and, uh, you know, political representation, you know, elections are, yes, an important component, but if you rely just on electing good people, you're always going to be sorely disappointed. You need a grassroots movement, you need strength in depth to ensure... We that, can't you know, elect anybody. People... We can't well, elect anybody well, anyway, because know, they're yeah. being thrown out of elections, aren't they? Selections. Well, that's true. But, I mean, uh, you know, direct action you know, can bear fruit. There's no doubt about that. In fact, all the progress that we make in this country has been actually, in the end, delivered through pressure from below. And look at what um, Palestine Action are achieving now. They've yes. forced Albert, the Israeli arms company, out of its London headquarters. They've forced them to close down their factory in, in Oldham. They're continuing their... Struggle that campaign uh, all over the country, every location, you know, they're, they're relentless and yeah. making sacrifices, being imprisoned and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, they're inspiration uh, and, uh, you know, just shows that direct action can can make a difference. So, you know, don't, don't despair, I think. And let's keep hope alive. Yeah. And, you know, in the end, if we if, if we do that. And, and, and we, join in you know, on the picket lines. Exactly. Then, then join we will in prevail. on picket lines. Join in we, Extinction we Rebellion on the 10th of September. Indeed. Go to Absolutely. all the well, picket Extinction lines. Extinction Rebellion, another, another good example of direct action, etc. Yeah. And, and join a union. As well. Yeah, and join a union. Absolutely. All those things. Well, thank you so much, Chris. And I'm sorry, oh, Gaz, we've gone over a bit. And sorry to the audience. We have no one on Q&A tonight, so we couldn't answer your questions. But thank you so very much for being with us and talking to Chris. Thank you, Chris. Go <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Solidarity, comrade. Cheers.